On this episode of the podcast, we're going to be diving into the mind of Ali Houston. He is a former physicist turned food specialist specializing in keto and paleo. Ali believes that it's not only your physical health that can be benefited by these diets, but also your mental well-being. And he cured his mental health with these diets. And he's going to be educating you on how you can do the same. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Into the Mind. My name's Harrison, and I hope this helps. Ali, I have a quote from your website and I'd like to read it to you. So, I fix my health using the power of paleo and keto diets. Coming from an absolute dummy, what are paleo and keto? So, starting with paleo, because that's where I started with this whole diet thing. Paleo is short for Paleolithic, which is a period of time before the Neolithic. So, before... Uh, human beings started settling more heavily into um, kind of farming communities and that kind of thing. Um, there was more of the kind of hunter hunter gatherer type setup, mm-hmm. and it's not a, it's not like an overnight thing that suddenly everyone went from hunter gatherer to farmer. Um, you know, there's there's thoughts about how that happened. Interesting ideas like. Um, you know, the grasses that the cows that we were, the sort of wild cows that we were um, hunting, the grasses that they were eating, you know, we, we realized that th- that if we planted them, then maybe the cows would come to where we were and it'd be a bit easier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these interesting ideas about how, yeah, we domesticated grains, but they domesticated us. <laughs> um, anyway... We're talking about that transition. So before that transition, you're talking about the Paleolithic period. So basically like 10 to 15,000 years ago, before that, and then back as far as you can track kind of human-like creatures or or human beings. Um, Because like modern humans are probably a few hundred thousand years old and kind of hominids that are like human beings are millions of years old and it's it almost doesn't make any sense um these numbers like you think about a thousand years ago was like the dark ages two thousand years ago was like the time of jesus and the romans and everything two thousand years before that you're talking kind of ancient egypt and it, it, it just gets lost in the mists of time so quickly. So to think about from f- 15,000 years ago, right back to say two and a half million years ago, where there's evidence of hominids butchering animals, you know, like cut marks that mm-hmm. are interpreted to be butcher marks. So we're talking about kind of roughly speaking, a couple million years, maybe to... 15,000 years ago. That's paleo. Yeah. And that, that diet would consist of what the, the kind of carnivore and very natural stuff, so to speak. Yeah, it's hard to pin down and it gets criticized a lot. And I think fairly because, you know, one of my ways into all of this was a guy called Weston Price, who was a dentist, but also a scientist from about 100 years ago. He was quite wealthy and 
uh, wanted to travel the world and see what the health was like of traditional peoples. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of amazing that he did this because there are kind of, um, you know, there's data from other explorers who went around the world um, who happened to write about what they saw, but no one is as detailed as he was in so many different areas around the world. And what he found was that unlike in the West, even by like the 1930s, there was, you know, a, a fair amount of disease uh, that was, um, that we would now think of as diseases of civilization, you know, cancer, heart disease, um, are, the, are the sort of main ones, dementia as well, increasingly. And even by the 1930s, they were starting to come through. Whereas he would go and look at these traditional societies all around the world. You know, he went to the Scottish Hebrides. He went to the Maasai tribesmen in Kenya. He went to um, Asia, you know, all around. And I think Australia as well, the Aboriginal people. So he was a, he was a dentist first. So he, he, would, he would take photos of their teeth. He yep. would see if there was any kind of... Um, any kind of uh, dental caries rotting away. And he found that like pretty much across the whole kind of uh, world of traditional societies, there was like, you know, a few teeth in every thousand were had any decay whatsoever. These people were super, super healthy. Mm -hmm. And not just that, he measured their, their kind of vitamin status and they were just healthy. There was no obesity. He couldn't see any signs of chronic disease um you know if they if they lived past the age of about 14 then they would typically live into old age unless they got a serious infection or there was a serious accident so the the point about paleo being criticized as a term to describe a diet is that these people who were super super healthy they weren't tapped into the Western diet. We can talk about what that means, but they had a huge variety of their own diets. So if you look at um, Inuit people and they might be eating um, <clears throat> seal blubber most of the year and that was most where most of their calories came from. And, um, you know, they would... They would eat all sorts of other things like maybe sometimes there was berries in the summer when it was when they were available they would you know be able to forage mussels um they would uh you know kill a variety of animals but they were carnivores really and the maasai tribesmen the tribes people the men really the the women ate more plants but the 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 tribesmen would just like nick uh a, a, a vein or an artery from uh, probably a vein from one of their cows and and drink the blood. Um, they've got For a system. The yeah, exactly. So they, they 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 herd cattle and they've got a system where they just nick the uh, near the near the surface of the skin and drain the blood, but only so much that the cow doesn't even really feel it or notice. And so they they take the the blood as a kind of uh, drink, and um, and they also milk the cows. And that's most of their food. And occasionally they'll kill a cow and eat it. You've opened up like five questions. I think the, the Western diet one's going to go on that we definitely get into. Obesity. 
Yeah. And our age at the moment, which I think, by the way, is horrendous. Yeah. And it's getting a lot worse. Yes. Um, dementia and the effects of food on dementia and mental yeah. health as well. Yeah. But before we get into that, we've kind of covered paleo. Yeah. About- I just want to say about the fact that it's not just carnivores. There was people eating, you know, 95% of their calories from carbs as well, or, you know, in, in, tra- in traditional societies. Exactly. So it's like... And it depends what you mean by natural, of course, but I get what you mean. It's like um, a whole food that you find in nature that's not really been messed with too much. And mm-hmm. I think that's that's a reasonable definition of paleo. You can try, you, there's, there's too many different types of traditional diet to really say there is a paleo diet. Yeah. We actually don't know what people ate back then, you know, talking tens, hundreds of thousands of years ago. We've got some evidence, like I say, of butchery two million years ago, but um, so we can we can be fairly sure that uh, people hunted and ate, you know, game and meat. Yep. But um, how how many how much of their diet was made up of plants? It's h- much harder to tell. Yeah. Um. So, th- you know, that's I think paleo, and then keto just means you're in a state of ketosis, which means that you know we're kind of like hybrids hybrid cars that can run on multiple different fuels so you can eat glucose for your source of calories and that could be sugar it could be starch like potatoes or rice or um or you can run on fat and um lots of our tissues around the body can run on fatty acids that are made up of the fat that we eat um or they can run on ketone bodies which are made from fat and there's a few different types of ketones, but if your body is producing ketones, you are in a ketogenic state, and if your diet is inducing that, then you're on a ketogenic diet. So keto just means that you're making ketones. So in terms of how you go through the process to make ketones to be on the keto diet, would that consist of eating no carbs, no sugar, fat, and protein? So you only eat fat and protein? Yeah, so you you you'd be surprised if someone is metabolically like very healthy. So the way that the metabolism, the way that their energy production works, is very healthy. Then you you could eat, you know, hundred grams of carbs or so a day, and find that you're still producing ketones. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, babies produce a lot of ketones, and they're being breastfed, typically quite a sweet milk. So there's like states where ketosis happens where you've not totally restricted carbs. But that is the the way that you reliably produce ketones is to restrict carbs, like you said. And um, so, yeah, your diet would then consist of protein and fat. And do some people with a naturally faster metabolism produce more ketones than someone without it's a good question. Um, it depends what you mean by faster. I think different people and even an individual over time will metabolize things differently. So um, someone who starts a ketogenic diet might not really ever have used that machinery in their body very much mm-hmm. in their whole life because they've had uh, three meals a day and snacks since they were a kid 
um, which consisted of um, carby and processed uh, food containing sugar, flour, veg oils, these kinds of things which impair the metabolism. Mm -hmm. So um, you could say that people might have, it, they, they train their metabolism to produce ketones better. I think there's some people who are just at the genetic sort of um, extreme of things. You know, like a human cockroach who can eat whatever they like, yeah. smoke loads of cigarettes, and they live till they're 95. Yeah. And they're, they're skinny as a whippet and happy. I like mean, don't, <laughs> don't smoke, but I eat whatever I want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so those people's metabolism, uh, there's clearly something different. Um, and to me, it comes down to uh, something which is often overlooked called mitochondria, which are like the sometimes known as the, the power the powerhouse or the, you know, the power station of the cell. Mm -hmm. And if your mitochondria are working well, then you're working well. Um, and that's that's quite a kind of deep thing. But um, to my mind, that's what having a good metabolism means is being metabolically flexible so that if you want to eat glucose, you can. Mm -hmm. um, but that you are e you easily produce ketones and can use fat for fuel. No, that's interesting. And I think that kind of brings me on to the point of firstly processed foods. So now that we know that what, you know, paleo and keto are, firstly processed foods and also the Western diet. So from experience traveling, so I went around Vietnam, Thailand, Bali, the foods there are so much fresher, so much healthier. And I felt physically better when I was there. What has happen, happened in Western society and the increase in processed foods and why is it impacting us in a negative way? Yeah, it's a really good question and people ha have not agreed on this. Like the, You can find uh, an expert from Harvard who'll disagree with an expert from Oxford about even what processed food is or means. Mm -hmm. One of my favourite people on this is a kind of a citizen, sci citizen scientist. He does have a science background, but now he's um, kind of predominantly a YouTuber and pork farm, uh, pig farmer. And um, the reason he got into pig farming is the quality of the fat. And the story really is, you could, I mean, the, the, there's a problem with the word processing because you go to a Michelin star restaurant and the food will be highly processed. Mm-hmm. But the ingredients will be top, and I bet if you ate just the the starters and main courses from from Michelin star restaurants your whole life, you'd probably be in pretty good shape because yeah. it's usually just like really good meat, really good veg, mm -hmm. done with a bit of flair. So, uh, Brad Marshall is this guy's name, and he was on my podcast, and he made the point that if you look at photos from a hundred years ago at Yankee Stadium, because he's in New York State. You look at the very expensive seats, people wearing their best best uh, clothes and all that. You you can't you can't find an obese person. Yeah. But then if you look at the the kind of USDA statistics for what food people were buying at the time, it's butter, cream, flour, sugar, um, and up to four thousand calories a day per adult male per household, you know, in, in, in these types of households. Mm -hmm. 
So they were eating these things, but obesity was rare. So what's been added mm -hmm. since then? And that's where the fat comes in. So he thinks, and I think, um, and quite a lot of other people are starting to think too, that um, modern vegetable oils are the single worst thing that's happened to the food environment in the last hundred years. Um, and they started off as a byproduct of industrial processes. So you had, you, when you were making cotton, you had all these seeds. Mm -hmm. You could make an oil from it, but nobody knew what to do with it. And, you know, is it an engine lubricant? Is it, what is it? And um, they realized it was getting into the food chain when um, some regulatory agency noticed that they were selling more lard in the United States than they were producing. Really? And they, they did the maths and they realized it's been cut. Yeah. So the producers were just using this cottonseed oil and putting it into lard to save money. And um, I can't remember exactly what Crisco stands for, but it's the American kind of heritage brand vegetable oil. And it comes from that era where they were trying to work out how to deodorize it and shelf stabilize it. And they did. And these, you know, like rapeseed oil, soybean oil, um, corn oil, crisp and dry, all these oils, they come from seeds and they're highly subsidized. And so they're cheap to produce um, for the producers. And um, they flooded the Western food system. And there's huge problems with refined sugar. There's huge problems with flour, particularly with autoimmune disease uh, and mental health. But um, vegetable oil seems to be, to me, the, 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 the major kind of culprit for obesity. Mm. And there's a really interesting paper that came out in Nature recently, um, one of the big science journals. And it's a, a couple of guys who I've followed for a few years. John Speakman is a professor in Aberdeen and Shenzhen. Um, and Herman Ponser, whose work is amazing. He's a professor in the United States. And he he went out and um, studied the Hadza tribe in Tanzania. Mm -hmm. And they... Um, they used this technique to measure how how many calories people were using every day. And they thought, these are hunter-gatherers. They're going to be burning so many calories. Yeah. And uh, what they found was big surprise, which was that um, a hunter-gatherer who's out for 10 hours a day hunting burns the same amount of calories as someone who's sitting at their computer all day. Why? That's the question. So it seems that there's, it's complicated, but that there's really a kind of a, a thermos, a, it's like a, a kind of thermostat, but for how much energy we use. Mm -hmm. And so if we're out exercising, then our metabolic rate, the amount of energy that we're using otherwise, compensates. Mm -hmm. So this is why 
it's it's actually it's not really filtered into society. This his his work was on the cover of Time magazine. There's like no doubt that it's legit. legit. Um, but because it's so counterintuitive that we've been told to eat less and move more our whole yep. lives, and that it makes sense that if you do work, you'll use calories. It just doesn't seem plausible that um, someone like a, a lean, muscular, active hunter-gatherer tribesman uses the same amount of calories as someone who's kind of really overweight sitting at their computer in slough. You know what I mean? But that's yeah. that's the fact. Um, within a couple of percent over the long term. Yeah. So um, they, him and John Speakman and others brought out this paper recently and it was measuring this you know calorie use over the last 40 years and although energy expenditure has gone up people are exercising more their metabolic rate so basically all the calories used by your body just to sort of be um has gone down and that change can explain the obesity epidemic and um it's interesting because they're starting to reference these citizen scientists. And so Herman Ponser, the guy who went to Tanzania, he actually, on Twitter, called out Brad Marshall saying um, his work is good on this and it may explain part of what what's happening. Because mm -hmm. the low-carb world, the keto world, the paleo world kind of is, you know, it, it's it's got the the root cause analysis a little bit wrong with what makes us fat. They've said it's the carbs that, that that did it. But if you look at Weston Price's work, where, yeah, there was carnivores, but there was also people eating 95% of their calories from carbs who were thin and yeah. and, and active and happy um, and healthy. And um, it, it can't explain what's going on. So um, I think veg oils really should be seen as something to avoid pretty religiously and um, that have caused an awful lot of damage and that are synonymous with processed food. So pretty much you can't pick up something that's been made by someone else for you to reheat mm -hmm. or go out to a restaurant now without there being a lot of veg oils in there. Yeah. And so to come circling all the way back, the kind of word processed to me just in my head might as well mean veg oils. Okay. So veg oils are definitely the thing to avoid. Definitely. It's like, to me, the main common factor, there's, you know, there's 4,000 or so novel food ingredients which are approved in America that probably have some impact yeah. But if you look around the world, they're not those, all four thousand are not all around the world, um, and this started happening a long time ago before those that variety of novel food ingredients, your e numbers and additives yep. to help shelf life and flavor and all the texture and all the rest of it. So I know it's got worse over the last kind of thirty forty years, but veg oils to me seem to be the yeah the the biggest candidate. Okay. Okay. And that kind of nicely brings me on to the effect on the brain that these diets can have. So you've talked quite openly about mental health 
Um, and I think this is something that a lot of people in society nowadays suffer with, um, you know, a, a bad mental health, a, a bad relationship with themselves. And it's funny that I've seen so many podcasts, so many people talking about the effect that a diet can have on that mental health. So for you personally, and also what advice would you give to people that are firstly suffering from mental health and want to make a change, a positive change, but also the impact it had on your mental health when you changed your diet? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's huge. And I think um, I can't really overstate how powerful it was for me and how powerful it can be for other people. So for me, I went from chronic anxiety, like really worried that bad things were going to happen almost all the time, uh, seasonal depression to the point where, you know, I had suicidal ideation at times, um, ADHD, which was diagnosed as an adult, and made sense of a lot of things from the past. You know, I performed well at school, but I didn't want to be there a lot of the time and um I struggled a lot in my, oh, you know if you look at my report cards that definitely comes out <laughs> um and various autoimmune diseases which I think were involved with my mental health um brain fog couldn't think clearly felt like a lot of the time I didn't have access to my brain which I knew wasn't I, you know I knew I wasn't daft but sometimes I felt like I was so all of these problems and there were severe and within weeks of making very specific change to my diet to make it ketogenic these went away and I thought well okay you know I was trying to explain to people how profound the change was but you, you can't see that change necessarily mm -hmm. you can only feel it and um, I was a bit concerned actually because I, I made that change in March 2016 and every kind of I would always enjoy the summer feel a lot better mentally and then when it came to sort of September time when the, the nights were drawing in I would start to dread what was coming which was this seasonal depression and it just didn't arrive mm. so for the first year that I could remember I really enjoyed the autumn and the winter, my and mood. those season changes. Yeah, I mean, my mood was just high and even, and that is so profound. Mm. And then a couple of other anecdotes. So um, I need to tell you guys about the sponsors of this channel. Chisholm Hunter are the brand new sponsors of the Into the Mind podcast and it's quite fitting because day to day I get tons of questions about my jewellery and my watches, especially on the Chisholm Hunter YouTube channel. All my jewellery, including this necklace, these rings and my watches are all from Chisholm Hunter. They're a UK-based company with 28 stores throughout the UK and they're family run and they've been going for about 165 years, which is pretty impressive. So if you want to get any luxury watches or jewellery, head to chismhunter.co.uk. That's chismhunter.co.uk. And on that note, back to the podcast. Ian Campbell is in Edinburgh. He's an academic. He um, used to be um, a music producer for Rockstar Games. And in fact, going back a bit further, he was quite successful um, in the music industry. He, he, uh, he was the assistant to the guy who did... Um, the music for Shrek and, you know, 
very accomplished musician, but he had lifelong problems with bipolar, mm. particularly bipolar two, um, which he calls the uh, the shit sequel to bipolar one that should never have been made. <laughs> um, it basically means that you've got less mania and more depression. And it's for people who don't know, it's a, a life ruining condition, you know, serious mental disorders like bipolar schizophrenia, they, um, they ruin people's lives basically. So, and they're typically given as a lifelong diagnosis. So it can be controlled in some people to some extent with drugs, but there's always a trade-off. There's always side effects and the positive benefit of these drugs is vari variable between individuals. So he, uh, he stumbled upon a ketogenic diet because he'd heard that it can help you lose weight. One of the side effects of a lot of a psychiatric medication is to mess with your metabolism and make you gain weight. Mm. And so he thought, well, if my, if my life is shit, I might as well be thin. <laughs> and it was very shortly after he started a ketogenic diet, he said he was on the bus and it was like, the national grid came on mm. in his brain for the first time since he was a kid. And he's like, what is going on here? And that was seven years ago. And he has not gone back into a depressed bipolar state since. Uh, why, why is that? What effect do you think that that, that keto diet had on his brain to make that change so there's there's multiple potential mechanisms and that's he changed his life he recently left the music business to um be a full-time academic and he did his phd in his spare time um on the way to doing that to understand why it worked mm -hmm. and in some senses that's why i changed career as well from physics and engineering to what I'm doing now because it was such a profound effect for me. It was such a profound effect for him. He thought, if this can work for other people, I have to try to make it work for other to people. To help other people. Exactly. So um, it's it, it, it could be that um, it, it probably depends on why your brain isn't working right in the first place. Mm -hmm. So for people with bipolar, um, they, they quite often talk about it feeling like you're drowning somehow. And so there's this effect of uh, a lack of kind of energy being available, which is what happens in a sense when you're drowning, you know, you've, you, you don't have the, the oxygen to, to power yeah. what you're doing. And um, so he's very interested in this area of mitochondria, you know, the, the little, um, it's not it's 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 not totally accurate to say they're like little power stations of the cells, but it's it's a kind of reasonable way to think about them. I think um, he's interested in these little power stations of the cells, the mitochondria, because they're all over the body, including the brain. And if they're not working correctly, then you you don't have enough energy. And so, um, if if that happens in the brain, then 
your brain's not going to perform as well as it can. And depending on what your genes are and what your background is and your, you know, what you've been through in your life, you know, different people, it'll, um, you know, uh, come out in different ways. So for me, it was anxiety, seasonal depression, ADHD, brain fog, that kind of thing. For Ian, it was bipolar. And why does a ketogenic diet help some people? It might be that when your metabolism breaks to some extent, you stop being able to use glucose effectively. And that can be a real problem in the brain, um, which is a very hungry organ. You know, it, proportional to its weight, it uses far more energy than other tissue in your body. And um, it's a bit of a question mark, you know, how can we afford as as animals to have such a energy hungry brain, you know, we, we need so much energy to fuel it. Um, but, uh, when, if we can't use glucose effectively, then, then we're in trouble unless we've got an alternative fuel source and ketones are, um, the brain cells love ketones. They can run very efficiently on them. The mitochondria love them. So it might be that, there's uh, over time when your metabolism is a bit broken, you stop being able to use glucose as well. So ketones work really well. So you think that some people's brains don't react as well to ketones or sorry, don't react as well to glucose as they do ketones. And you think that if people make that switch, that transition, people that need to, their brain could work better with ketones instead of glucose. Yes, definitely. And, it, and I always try and put it, it through a paleo lens as I think of it. If you think about a hunter, you know, if they're going hunting and trying to outsmart an animal, it makes sense that over time, the the humans who survived would be the ones who would get better at hunting over the sort of day or two that they hadn't eaten. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens when you go into ketosis. If you stop eating, fasting, then your body will produce ketones. That's... And you start to become mentally sharper. And it's the, it's the human beings that that happened to over the course of history that would have survived rather than the ones that became more sluggish when they were hunting. That's extremely interesting to me. I think partially because a couple of my friends at the moment have tried fasting and they said the first day sucked. Mm-hmm. The second day, they felt like a weight had been lifted off mm. and they felt, as you say, sharper, which is, what is the effect? So the effect is when you fast that more ketones are released in the brain and you're burning your fat directly instead of the energy that you're putting into your body. Mm-hmm. And That's you right. think that that stimulates the brain in some way. Yeah, so using ketones, the brain seems to like ketones. Mm-hmm. So whether you're using a ketogenic diet or you're fasting and producing ketones for energy, uh, in the brain, it certainly seems that that sharpens people up, even even if they don't have mental disorders. So um, that's one way that it could have helped myself, could have helped Ian. Um, there's levels of inflammation in the body, which are, you know, there's always some reason for inflammation. It's a good thing to have if you sprain your ankle or something, because it means that the body's healing it. But um, chronic inflammation 
produces substances in the body that can um, cause problems in and of themselves. Mm. And so the breakdown products of inflammation, if it's chronic, can affect the brain. And so this is this is why I mentioned gluten earlier, because um, your flour, because a lot of the problems can start in the gut and gluten is terrible for the gut. And um, yeah, I mean, maybe one, one or 2% of the population ends up being diagnosed as celiac, but that's not even the half of it. It's funny, my brother's actually a celiac. Do you think there's a specific cause that is brought on that condition or do you think it's more genetic? So it's a mixture of, I mean, all, like all of these things, it's a mixture of genes and environment. But, um, you know, wheat is what causes symptoms in celiacs. Mm -hmm. And um, you need a genetic profile to end up with a diagnosis of celiac disease. But, you know, can you be profoundly damaged by wheat and not be diagnosed with celiac? Yes. So the, there's a spectrum of how people's bodies react to wheat. And, um, you know, uh, wheat is, is, uh, is, like I said earlier, in a way, it's domesticated us mm -hmm. because before it was just like a kind of uh, grass that was scattered to the winds. And now it's one of the most successful plants ever. Mm -hmm. um, so... The change, the changes that have been made to wheat thousands of years ago to make it better for human consumption. Um, I'm not sure if we did that or whether that was an accident, but anyway, it 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 damages us. Yeah. And the guy who really so like maybe maybe forty years ago this would have sounded like um, junk science that. You know, you, you shouldn't listen to, oh, it's only a very few people have a problem with it. Everyone else is fine. Um, I just think that that is nonsense. And that there's a there's a brilliant researcher, a, an Italian guy who works in America, Ale, uh, Alessio Fasano, And he worked out why wheat is damaging. And the main reason is it, the, the proteins in the wheat which um, make your your gut open to, mm. you know, essentially when you eat food, a lot of researchers and doctors think of um, the the inside of your body only starting in your bloodstream in your gut or next to your gut and that inside your mouth, inside your stomach and in, into your small intestine, that's, that's still outside your body in okay. a sense. And so um, what what is it that opens up and lets food into the bloodstream well it's these little it's these little doorways these little junctions they're called tight junctions and what what wheat does is it opens them when they shouldn't be open mm. and then things get in the bloodstream that shouldn't be in the bloodstream and that's what makes you feel sluggish and slower yeah it can lethargic. it can it can affect all tissues in the body and so autoimmune diseases um and celiac's actually a special case as well because i think um there's this specific response to gluten which um like in itself is an autoimmune reaction but basically like the um which can cause further damage to wherever the gluten is but uh 
and everyone to some extent, gluten opens these tight junctions so that things get into the bloodstream which shouldn't be there. And um, once they're there, your immune system is like, well, what are you doing here? Mm. And if it gets into specific tissues, it's going to attack those tissues. So people end up with autoimmune diseases. And to me, the main culprit is wheat. And autoimmune diseases are everywhere. Yeah. You know, you're talking about psoriasis, multiple sclerosis, um, pernicious anemia, alopecia, uh, the ones I had, sarcoidosis, um, this achalasia thing where my food pipe closed, um, you know, other things in my family like uh, autoimmune thyroid disease, um, like really common diseases that people don't kind of tend to thread together as having a common cause. Mm -hmm. So and you think that's wheat? Yeah. Partially. Yeah, I do. Probably mainly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that's an advantage of, of a paleo diet is that it tends to cut out grains because we didn't really tend to eat grains, we think, before 10,000 years ago or so. From that conversation, I've I've written an, an extra like ten questions, and I, but I think one of the really interesting ones that I was learning about the other day was <clears throat> the manipulation of fruit and veg in today's society. Oh yeah, yeah. Now, if you look at ban a banana, yeah, from a hundred years ago, yeah, it's tiny, it's seeded, and it's not half as sweet. And what we've done a bit like with dogs, they're derived from wolves. We have a pug, so that's right. derived from a wolf. It's mental, <clears throat> but. These big bananas that are really sweet now, they've been genetically engineered through hundreds of years to be bigger and sweeter than the predecessor. And I suppose my question there is, do you think this has had an extremely negative impact in terms of the food that we eat nowadays that we think is healthy, but actually it's been genetically modified for X amount of time um, to be bigger, sweeter, more glucose? What were your kind of thoughts? Yeah, I think definitely the amount of fiber that's there has changed. So that, um, in some ways it's been denatured, refined in a sense. But then Weston Price, going back to his work, he noticed that people in the tropics would eat freely from tropical fruit trees where, you know, you're talking about like papayas and stuff which haven't really been modified too much. That's just how they, mm. they tend to grow. Um and ate very sweet things or hunter gatherers who would eat honey a lot or um, people eating very starchy things. Starch tends to break down to glucose. So I think what's happened is our metabolisms have broken. Mm. Yes, we've modified these fruits to make the sugar that's in them more available but in a properly working metabolism, you should be able to have glucose. Mm -hmm. So I don't see that as a big issue. Mm -hmm. um, I think eating loads of vegetables might actually be a worse, a, a worse thing for people's health. They've been genetically, they've been selectively bred. Yeah. Um, you know, if you look at all the cruciferous stuff, like your broccoli and so on, then there's a common ancestor there. It's like a mustard root. It doesn't look very appetizing. It's kind of, um, you know, and all these like things that we eat, big volumes of. I don't think we would necessarily be doing that 
historically. And you look at Western Price's work again, people were eating vegetables, um, but to varying extents. And um, there's stuff in vegetables that are there as protection from consumption. So fruit is a bit different because the method of reproduction of fruit tends to be get eaten, the pips, the seeds, pass through whatever animal's eating it. Great for the fruit. Yeah, It gets like, you know, some free fertilizer when it gets <laughs> dropped out. That's the system. With vegetables, it's not. They're, they tend to be sort of flowering and they, you know, so they rely on pollination. And um, so they can't run anywhere. Mm. They're not like a bison who's massive and has horns and stuff. They um, they have to they have to engage in a kind of a biological arms race that we're all engaged in all the time against viruses and other things that would destroy us. Mm -hmm. So what does what does a plant do? Well, it creates chemicals that um, fight off predators. So I think vegetables are actually potentially worse and that they, although they don't mess with the metabolism in the same way that sort of vegetable oils do, that for some people, uh, again, probably the extreme end of things, particularly with mental health, they can cause problems. You know, there's there's anecdotes of people who've been on a ketogenic diet for a long, long time who then uh, go on a carnivore diet with cut out all plants and their serious mental disorder gets better. And on that note, I think Jordan Peterson was one of those people. So he started, and you'll do a better job of explaining this diet than me. It was solely meat. It mm -hmm. was only, what was the meat that he had? He just eats beef. And that's it. I think he might have lamb as well, but yeah, just ruminant meat. Mm -hmm. And he he explained that his autoimmune diseases, his mental health, took a huge skyrocket after starting this diet. Mm -hmm. What do you think that was? Yeah, this is a bit of a, an open question, even amongst people who have been thinking about it for a long time. Yeah. Um, Amber O'Hearn is another one uh, who was on a ketogenic diet for a long time and had bipolar and when she went carnivore her bipolar went into remission that was about 10 years ago and um in fact it was more than 10 years ago now and it's not come back so it's that's, very that's compelling and she's she's a very careful computer scientist so she writes very eloquently about this and um in in depth and detail that 99% of people will not want to get into. <laughs> but to me, my background is sort of physics and engineering. In some, to, to, to truly understand something, to predict how it's going to act and to, you know, to plan at scale, you want to know how something works. Yeah. But at some stage, you have to test your theory and Sometimes, particularly with product engineering, if it works, you just leave it alone because mm. you're not sure what's going to work and you don't want to keep tinkering. Um, so I 
can see the value as an experimentalist of if something works, great. Yeah. And so I really want to know why it works for some people. And because if you can do that, then you can hopefully replicate it. Um, and like w the studies that are being done on ketogenic diets, most people tend to improve with mental disorders, but some people get completely better and some people don't find that it helps them at all. Mm -hmm. So what, what, what's happening with those people? Why can't those people get better seemingly? Is, do they need to go carnivore? Do they need to cut out all plants completely? Is it something else that could be done besides that? Because again, you've got to live your life. Yeah. Some people just don't want to just eat beef and lamb all the time. Mm -hmm. They want to, they want to have vegetables. They want to have fruit. They want, you know, some people find that they need to stay ketogenic, so fruit is always going to be off the table. But you know, so understanding what it is is important. But honestly, nobody knows why exactly. They can guess that it's maybe something to do with, you know, gut integrity. Mm -hmm. There's um, people who have uh negative reaction to plants that kind of flares up gut bacteria that then in a damaged gut gets into the bloodstream and then has secondary effects in the brain that's plausible but i don't think anyone knows for sure yeah so i always say to clients that if you want to try what has worked for some people at that end of things then carnivore is the way you, you can start there. It's almost like a perfect baseline elimination diet. And then, you, you know, if you get a baseline where you feel great, then you can introduce things one at a time and see, does that have a negative effect or not? And um, people really find their way doing that so they can go from, and I think Jordan Peterson's tried that where he's tried to reintroduce things and it's not worked. So he yeah. just had to stay there. He doesn't like it, but it's the only thing that works. And similarly with his daughter, Michaela, who spoke at Amber O'Hearn's conference, carnivore conference. She had dreadful uh, autoimmune arthritis, had joints replaced when she was a teenager. And um, carnivore is the only thing that's worked for her, particularly actually just ruminant meat. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how I think of it is like the perfect elimination diet. And people worry about nutrients and stuff, but you get everything you need from ruminant meat is very very nutritious yeah. i think on that note so there's i should actually say you might not get everything you need from ruminant meat some people do need extra things like uh eggs are really good mm. round it out nutritionally but yeah yeah i think that there's obviously the autoimmune fixes um that come with these diets uh, and there's so many different factors. People can't pinpoint it exactly, but it definitely has a positive impact in the whole, uh, from you know afar, taking the picture as a whole. But the mental health aspect is really fascinating as well. I suppose I was learning about glucose and how glucose obviously spikes your mental activity and spikes your whole body and you have energy, but then after that glucose spike, you crash. Mm -hmm. Now, the interesting thing about this is that you're not technically stable when you start having glucose. Do you think that that is an impact on the mental state and mental health? And maybe that's why these diets can uh, solve some of these problems like seasonal depression, like anxiety. You're not having these huge spikes. You're more stable. Do you think that has an impact? Yeah, I think it, it definitely can. Like I say, glucose shouldn't disrupt people's uh, 
mental or physical state too much if they're metabolically healthy. So if it does, it might be a sign that they're not metabolically healthy. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a bit of a question mark because, you know, you see people like, for example, uh, Glucose Goddess who's doing these um, continuous glucose monitor measurements. So she does these graphs of her kind of blood glucose over time when she eats certain things. And you can impact that through, uh, you know, increased fiber or um, what time of day you do it or whether you start with the protein and fat bit and then have the glucose later. You know, it's actually, if you're metabolically healthy, then it's probably not super unhealthy to have a dessert once in a while after your meal. Yeah. Um, your body metabolizes it much better like that. But those peaks and troughs of energy, we've all felt them, you know, when we get hangry. Yeah. And um, I think it comes from not being metabolically flexible. So if your available glucose disappears because you've used it or because it's been um, kind of stored away for later use, uh, then you start to feel that hangry feeling. But if you've got a flexible metabolism where you can use fat, you can use ketones, then the, the transition is actually more smooth. Yeah. So like, you know, you can store about 2000 calories of, of about a day's worth of glucose in your, um, in your muscles and your, and your liver. But even the skinniest marathon runner has about 50,000 calories of fat on them. So if you can learn to access that and be metabolically flexible, like your friends who are fasting, mm -hmm. then it's a win. It's a huge win. Absolutely. And on that note, I suppose so. there's the, the sort of natural cures to, to mental instability, like depression or anxiety. And then there's obviously the drugs that the doctors can, can, can give to kind of, they're not curing it, but they're, they're kind of putting a plaster over it. What are your thoughts on these drugs? Like, I think there was one of them, Citalopram. Is it Citalopram? Mm -hmm. um, and there's, there's a couple of different ones. What are your thoughts on those drugs instead of the natural solutions? Yeah. Um, I did training last year with one of my heroes, uh, Dr. Georgia Ede, who's a psychiatrist. Trained, um, she's from Massachusetts. She went to Harvard. She worked at Harvard for a time helping students with their mental health. And then she worked in college mental health and her own private practice. And she started using nutrition somewhere along the way and realized that not only did it work, but there was good reasons why it could work. And I asked her the question on my podcast, um, what is the difference between a win now as a nutritional psychiatrist mm -hmm. versus a win when you were predominantly using um, a mixture of drugs and psychotherapy. Because psychiatry can be a blend. It depends on your background and training and preference uh, and what the patient wants, like between psychotherapy, where you talk to them in a particular mode, whether that's CBT or person-centered therapy, counseling kind of thing, and the drugs. And she said the difference in the win is that when she was prescribing more medication, uh, someone might 
have gone from thinking about dropping out of university to being able to finish university. Mm -hmm. That's not nothing. You know, drugs can really, really help people. She said that she always had to say to them, similarly with a ketogenic diet, but she always had to say to them, I don't know how this drug is going to affect you. It might make you worse. Mm -hmm. Coming off, it might be hellish, but it might make you better mm -hmm. to some extent. So, you know, the patient would then choose whether to, to do it or not. And then she said, a win with a ketogenic therapy means that they've got their life back completely. Mm -hmm. They've got complete remission of whatever mental disorder they had. So that's someone with very good training through the Harvard medical system. The, you might say that's the sort of pinnacle of mm, pharmacological and uh, psychotherapy training that you could get in the world, potentially. And she practiced that for years. And that's as good as it gets. People sort of can get back on their feet. Yeah. So it's almost like drugs to an extent are a sticking plaster for the underlying issue and they can help people through a period, but they're not getting to maybe the root of the problem. And the diet could potentially get to that root of the problem. Yeah, I can't, I can't think of a psychiatric medication because you, you mentioned citalopram, which is a, an SSRI, which is about serotonin reuptake, but there's the different drug classes that act on different mental disorders in different ways. I can't actually think of a single one which is about stemming the root cause. Hmm. Uh, so getting to the root cause and, um, and, and fixing it. It really is about trying to affect a pathway downstream of this root cause what if the root cause is you've got a metabolic disorder where your metabolism is just not working right a ketogenic diet can fix that permanently so that's why we find people uh, just transforming their mental health on a ketogenic diet sometimes and I, I suppose on that note there'll be lots of people watching this that might Firstly, they suffer with uh, they're maybe obese, um, or they they want to lose weight, or they're struggling with their mental health. I know that you've got a new website. Is it Metsci? Yep, Metsci.com. So I know that that helps people um, from talking to you. But explain what that website does and how you can help people through their diet mentally and physically. Yeah. So uh, my colleague at Metsci.com is Dr. Rachel Brown, who's a senior psychiatrist in Edinburgh and she works in crisis mental health team there which um, is for people who are you know acutely mentally unwell and so she's got a lot of experience working with serious mental disorders and she herself actually is a carnivore so she's on Instagram at carnivore shrink and she is super interested like I am in uh, how mental health can be improved through diet and lifestyle and so we got together and decided let's you know make Scotland an example of how we can kind of trailblaze with this and 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 show that we're not just sort of the sick man of Europe which is kind of the reputation that we have you've you might have heard of the Glasgow effect yeah. where you know if you get on the train in the West End 
for every stop you lose a year of life expectancy or something. It's absolutely dreadful. There's places in Glasgow that have a lower life expectancy than you know, like Baghdad. It's yeah. just it's dreadful. Um, and it, uh, so we wanted to show the world and help the world that you know, and to tell them that the eating and um, your lifestyle can really transform mental disorders. And so that's why we started METSI, which is short for Metabolic Psychiatry. It's this idea that you change your metabolism, you can change your mental health. And um, I should say that, obviously, if the ketogenic diet is what we're going to work for you, that's a very profound change in your metabolism. And if you're already on psychiatric medication, then you need to work closely with whoever's prescribing you that medication. Yeah. Because what people can find is that they can sometimes get a little bit worse before they get better. Yeah. Also, um, that they might have to taper down the medication to stop them from getting um, reactions or effects that they don't want. So that's like front and center, I have to say. Mm -hmm. If you're going to use a ketogenic diet for your mental health and you're being prescribed medication, you have to work with the person who's prescribing it. Yeah. So that's what MetSci is. It empowers people to do that with their prescriber. Um, or people who don't have a diagnosed mental disorder. They just identify as not feeling as uh, sharp or happy or fulfilled as they could. And they want to try something. You know, maybe they're anxious, maybe they're down sometimes. Um, yeah, maybe they don't feel so good about their body because, you know, Amber O'Hearn, who I mentioned earlier, says, you know, a lot of people with carnivore or keto, they come for the weight loss and they stay for the mental health benefits. And it's so true. Uh, but, you know, I guess with MetSci, you could say the reverse. You can come for the mental health benefits and stay for the, the weight yeah. control. And so we offer coaching services, Basically, we we offer coaching services, whether that's one to one, or in small groups, or later this year we're launching an app and we're launching a course that people can get all the information they need to do this themselves and work with us on live Q and As to get all the, any any extra information that they that they need to make this lifestyle change work for them and their mental health. And you mentioned before when we were, we were talking a little bit before, and you said that the diet is a huge, huge component and part of it, and I truly believe that. Um, and I think that also sleep is a huge part of it. And th th for your diet, you can you can help your sleep. <clears throat> what are the ways that people can help their sleep through diet? Yeah, so it's a it's a really deep question, and I think it it's um, it's iterative as well, so that. If you don't sleep well, then your blood glucose and willpower and all of that the next day, not good. Mm. So you might eat things that then... Spike it. Yeah, make you sleep less well for whatever reason. And the, the vicious cycle continues. And it's more of a virtuous cycle if you can uh, eat things which are better for your metabolism... A lot of people find that stopping eating before, say, 8 or 9 p.m. is better for their sleep. Mm -hmm. Some people find that if they go, say, very low carb, then their sleep can actually be negatively affected for a time. Mm -hmm. um, some people don't need to go keto or low carb for their mental health or their physical health, but um, they find that they actually, you know, 
they quite like having some carbs at the end of the day and that helps them sleep. But I don't think that's necessary. Usually in the long term, you can work out a way to do low carb or keto where um, it doesn't affect your sleep negatively. Usually it's about working out the foods and the amount of fat that you're getting that allows you to be properly fueled. But um, definitely blue light is a big problem. Mm. So thinking through the paleo lens again, what light uh, was ancestrally available to humans? Natural. It was natural light. It was the sun and maybe fire. But um, what we have now is screens that are spewing out blue light, which signals in our eye and then to our brain and metabolism that it's daytime. And that's so profound. So I try to, I use um, like blue light filters on, the, on my phone and my computer screen. Mm-hmm. And some people go a step further and use blue blocker glasses. I've actually got blue blocker glasses. Have you used, do you use them? I you notice the difference? Yes, especially yeah. because I edit, I do videography, photography. When I edit, I edit late at night. Mm-hmm. And before, when I wasn't using them, I would go to bed and my mind would be racing. Mm. When I did use them, I, I, I had a noticeable difference that I was more tired when I got to bed. Wow, interesting. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, like, I think with so many things with, you know, that are uh, divorced from our ancestral environment we just get used to them so quickly that we think there can't be a problem it's normal it's normal but there is a problem with light and um i encourage people to get out in the sun mm-hmm. as much as they can without burning mm-hmm. you know um which if you're eating properly actually people tend to find that they 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 it takes longer for them to burn so um i know andrew huberman's really big on this getting light in the morning and um, even if it's just going out for a 10-minute walk uh, and then in the evening blocking blue light to some extent. Some people find they're more sensitive than others mm-hmm. and I don't personally wear blue blocking glasses, although I think it's, there's nothing wrong with that except it makes everything look orange. <laughs> um, yeah, and sleep hygiene, like beyond light, like um, having a cool room, um it's it, it the, these things all feed into each other because the other thing we were talking about was connection and how that mental health is not just about um what you're eating mm. it's also about your history of psychology so have you been through trauma mm. you know that's going to have a huge effect and that's going to affect your sleep potentially too um and your you know your blood glucose control like all of these things are linked and uh it's it's interesting talking to people who have a history of trauma who've changed their diet. They're, you know, you wish you could wave a magic wand and something that bad that happened to someone didn't happen, but you can't do that. Mm-hmm. But why wouldn't you want to be in as good a condition as possible yep. to then get some therapy to deal with that trauma, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, going back to sleep, the... The, the blue blocking is huge and um, I guess try not to engage in, in stressful tasks after a certain time. Mm-hmm. Everyone's busy, but that, that's been big for me. Um, switching off. 
I suppose when we when we get into the everyone's different, so I think your job can be very difficult because you need to diagnose tons of a wide spectrum. You need to figure out what's what's going on uh, with a huge spectrum. So there's no silver bullet, so to speak. Um, but you can take the steps necessary to help these people. <clears throat> I suppose what have you found is the most beneficial thing in your life for your mental health? Has it been the diet? Has it been sleep? I think diet. And I, I was going to mention um, exercise as well because mm. exercising, doing something that you like regularly, um, especially if maybe you're exerting yourself, so like lifting weights or getting out of breath, doing something that you like, whatever it is, is clearly good for your health. Yeah. Even if, like we were saying earlier, it's not really about burning calories. It's, a, it's about being insulin sensitive. It's about growing muscle um, so that you're strong. It's about um, sometimes feeling connected to the people that you're doing it with, all of that stuff. And that can help you sleep. But I would always say to people, like, get the diet in first yeah. before you start trying to exercise a lot. Uh, you know, you might not have the energy yet. You might not, you might actually damage your joints if you're very overweight and you try to do a lot of exercise. You know, there's always things you can do and you can be gentle about it. You can do low impact stuff whatever you enjoy but I think diet comes first and it's the same with sleep that you can um, you know do all these things that are quote unquote the right things for sleeping but if your diet is not good then it's not it's not going to help as much as it could and it might even not even not work at all like if you if you're still eating loads of sugar and you're still dead amped up uh, when you when you're going to, trying to go to sleep and you feel anxious, then you can't just will yourself to sleep. You know, mm. you can't say sleep, sleep, and you're asleep. So you're in control of your diet mm. in a way that you're not in control of your sleep. Mm. If you understand me, yeah. And I think that um, we were talking earlier about alcohol and the effect that alcohol has on sleep. Would you suggest that someone that's obviously struggling with this diet and struggling with sleep, it, it, would it be a quit alcohol or would it be a tailor the amount of alcohol i've heard that if you drink one beer a singular pint your rem sleep decreases by 40 to 50 percent in that night yeah i'd not heard that but i believe it and it's been my experience you know i used to drink a lot coming from the west of scotland it's pretty standard Mm. and um i stop i've more or less stopped drinking i sometimes it might be a couple of few times a year maybe for really special occasions um and it's not because i it's not because i act towards it addictively i have been addicted to cigarettes and food i would say but it's more that it just i i weigh the pros versus the cons and alcohol loses yeah always so um and and then i just, and then i was thinking like what are the negative effects of just having one or two and actually, they were still pretty bad. You know, actually, it could have a really negative effect on my mood uh, over the course of the next week, even. Um, some people are just more sensitive like that. And certainly disrupted sleep. Uh, I noticed that if I was having a glass of wine with dinner, then sometimes I'd wake up in the night kind of uh, pal- with palpitations and um, kind of sh- like breathing fast. And... I'd read that sulfites in wines can cause that reaction. Mm-hmm. So I went for sort of 
biodynamic, organic uh, wine without sulfites. And that did stop that problem. But my sleep quality wasn't as good. I, I felt it the next day. Um, you know, this idea that small amounts of alcohol are good for us, I don't believe it. I don't think that the... the I don't think that the research is really that strong on that. I think that we want to believe it. Yeah, because everyone drinks. <laughs> yeah, and also that it does feel good mm. and that it can help social connection. Mm. There's no doubt about it. There's pros to drinking. Otherwise, mm. people wouldn't do it. But for me, um, it's not worth it. And it gets in the way of sleep for sure. And it gets in the way of other parts of my health, like mental health, that I'm just not willing to compromise on. And it's really bad for the gut. I heard an interesting study the other day. Um, I think it was on TikTok. So, but I, I believe it to be true. If you drink an alcoholic drink, your dopamine raises two x, so you feel great for fifteen minutes, and mm -hmm. then it starts to fall, which is why you start craving the next pint and the next drink and the next drink. If you take a line of cocaine, it goes up two point five x for seven minutes, and then it begins to drop mm. below the original point. So that's why you get come downs of cocaine and people have withdrawal symptoms from cocaine if you take a cold water plunge which is what we were talking about earlier your um dopamine in your brain raises 2x but it raises for two and a half hours and there's no fall below the original line mm. which is i believe that to be true um i was just wondering what your takes are do you do you also believe that yeah dopamine's a funny one um the dynamics of dopamine i think i haven't properly tried to understand I I think it's it's key to motivation, but um, I, all I know is that with the cold plunge stuff, again through the paleo lens, it makes sense ancestrally. Mm -hmm. um, we wouldn't have had heated pools or heated homes. Heated homes, heat, except with a you know gathering around a fire, but. Um, you know, the water that we would bathe in, um, wash in, etc., would be cold, typically, I think. So it makes sense that we would be ancestrally matched to bathing mm. in cold water. It's kind of funny that the effect is so strong. Mm. And in a way, I guess, it's like what I was saying earlier, it's good to know mechanisms and understand them so that you can make more recommendations or even like tweak it up so that it works better. But if it feels good and it's not hurting you, then why wouldn't you do it? Yeah, and it's totally natural. Yeah, so there's this, I know about the mammalian diving reflex where your heart rate goes down, you feel calmer, um, and that lasts a long time if you've got cold water touching your face for a certain amount of time. And this is like true for all, I think all mammals. Um, and so we're sort of programmed, if you like, to enjoy diving into water, cold water mm -hmm. and to swim through it under underneath. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's true. I, I, I don't know about the dopamine dynamics, but I know that I feel really good when I do that um, and that the effect is long-lasting, hours rather than minutes, um, and that I don't feel bad afterwards. Yeah, where's the downside? Except it's quite uncomfortable. <laughs> and for someone watching this that is looking for, there's no quick fix. As you said, there's no silver bullet. You know, everyone is different. Everyone is unique. What are a couple of steps that they can take right now 
to um, firstly increase their physical health through diet, but also their mental health? Yeah, I think people have to decide where their line is. Um, what I always tell clients who are reluctant to maybe take a plunge into a ketogenic diet or a carnivore diet or whatever is, yeah, you can start slow and you can maybe try a sort of paleo-style diet where you're really just going for whole foods, which are ancestrally appropriate, and you're talking about sort of the, the fruit and veg aisle and the, um, and the meat aisle and maybe like um, some, some rice or some sweet potato, basically avoiding gluten and, and, and in some cases dairy. Um, and then see how you feel in that space yeah. and then move on to something else. Or you could try keto and uh, or carnivore and see how you feel and if you do that for a couple of months and you don't like it all the foods that you currently eat all the time are still going to be there yeah just because you stop them it doesn't mean someone's going to take them away forever <laughs> so imagine you know your life changes in the same way that it did for me what would that mean to you? Why not try it? And, um, you know, I think there's a bit of tension between encouraging people to make a change and suggesting something that seems extreme to some people. But there's a, I think there's really good reasons why these types of diets can be so profoundly helpful. And, you know, Jordan Peterson hates his diet. Uh, Ian Campbell wishes he could go back to eating the way he used to and, 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 and still feel good, but he can't. He has to stay on a ketogenic diet. I'm the same. Mm -hmm. It's not that I stopped liking donuts. Yeah. It's that they never liked me <laughs> and that I just feel amazing when I don't eat those things mm -hmm. and I eat a ketogenic diet. So I would just say to people, you have to decide where your line is here. And if you're ready to make a change, try it out. Look for the best information you can and go for it. Because, you know, Krispy Kreme's going to be there in two months. <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts is going to be there. Yeah. Well, listen, Ali, thank you very much for all of that. Uh, there's so many more questions that I would love to ask you. I'd love to keep you here all day, but I don't think that's physically possible. <laughs> so thank you very much. You're very welcome. Yeah, we can, we can hash it out in the comments. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Into the Mind podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, if you've got some knowledge and taken away something from this episode, please consider hitting that subscribe button from wherever you are. It really helps more than you know, and we'll be back in a couple of days.